Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. Out in front to Williams. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. Takes a shot, she scores. See the full schedule and find where to watch at IONNWSL.com. Hello and welcome to today's Bunker with me, Andrew Harrison. A lineup of Putin, Erdogan, Xi Jinping and the Belarusian dictator Alexander Lukashenko with the headline, The Bad Guys Are Winning. That was the cover of The Atlantic magazine in December 2021. It was the most depressing front page of any publication I'd seen in years. And like all good covers, it crystallised a horrible truth. Inside, Anne Applebaum talked about Autocracy Incorporated, the anti-democratic movement headed by strongmen that is still sweeping the world and which shows only few signs of slowing down. This is the story of our time, the resurgence of demagogues, political thugs and might makes right in a world that seems to be losing confidence in democracy. But what are we going to do about it? That's the theme of Defeating the Dictators, How Democracy Can Prevail in the Age of the Strongman by Charles Dunst, a geopolitics analyst and foreign correspondent who's written for the New York Times, the Washington Post and Foreign Policy, amongst many other titles. It's a fascinating look at why strongmen and authoritarian regimes seem to be winning, but also where their weak spots are. And it contains a hard truth. If countries like Singapore and Saudi Arabia continue to provide for their people while democracies seemingly force their citizens to fight for scraps, he writes, authoritarian governance will become more and more popular. So how do we reassert democracy in a world where strongmen aren't just on the front foot? They seem to be delivering for their people too. Charles Dunst is here with me today. Hi, Charles. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming in. So so you look at the direction of the, the whole authoritarian project. Partly from an economic point of view, and you paint a very sobering picture, you said that autocracies now account for 35% of global income. And in 1992, it was only 12% of global income, which illustrates how they've grown. And for the first time since 2004, there are more autocracies than democracies in the world. Are we on the way to hell? No, I don't think we're on the way to hell. But I do think there has been difficulty in the recent years of countries on the fringe. So I would say somewhere like Hungary or even Poland, which I still I still can think Poland is on the democratic spectrum, but barely. Just about. It's Just wobbling, about. yeah. Exactly. But I would say Hungary is not. I think Hungary is not at this point. And that was mainly the result of cultural and I think actually less so economic issues in the recent years. But I think we forget sometimes that how did this actually happen in the first place? How did Viktor Orban kind of come into power? He came into power because the left was fairly inept. Hmm. And there was this leaked speech in which essentially the left admitted kind of off the record and then on the record because it was leaked, that they had lied through the campaign, they hadn't delivered on their economic promises. And I think the Hungary story is a really cautionary tale Mm. for democracies everywhere because they were a functional, kind of fairly consolidated democracy and it went fairly quickly. Yeah, it all strikes me as as the kind of Dracula syndrome. You only need to invite Dracula in once and then he can come in whenever he likes. Exactly. Yeah. Throughout the book, you argue that open democratic societies are are better at delivering innovation and growth as well as obviously democracy. But autocracies like Saudi or Singapore 
often operate in a more paternalist way. Their populace is often very happy with them and they often work better. I mean, for instance, healthcare is better in Singapore than in the US and housing is better in Singapore than in Britain. It's just you don't get a vote. So it's one of the key problems in these places that autocracies are actually quite good at delivering. I think the richest autocracies right. are very good at delivering. And it's worth stating, I think I said in the book, that's a very small number of autocracies. And I think that's the key point here is you think about when we talk about autocracies generally in the media, you think about Russia or even to some extent China, but it's really Russia, it's Iran, which do not function. I mean, those are not functional autocracies. And I think it's worth saying that the majority of autocracies don't don't work. But there are there are this kind of small number of autocracies. So I think of Singapore, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, yeah. and to some extent parts of China where there is no yearning for democracy across a broad swath of the population. I think in the West, we have this image sometimes of, well, at least the intelligentsia in the capitals in Riyadh or in Beijing are advocating for democracy. And that's just really not the case. There is, I think, an acceptance of autocracy as a, there at least, as a better system for them and a sense of, well, look how messy the UK is or look how messy the United States is or even look how messy Japan is. I mean, Japan's politics are fairly stagnant, but so is their growth. Yeah. Where if you're Singapore, or and I think what's a big problem is if you're a developing country, so if you're Vietnam or if you're Egypt and you're thinking, what is my road to riches? The more, peop more people you talk to, they often will say, well, I want to be like Singapore or I want to be like the UAE. Mm -hmm. It's not so much I want to be like the UK or I want to be like the United States, which is a real shift from the last... 20 years. Yeah. You do also point out that, you know, years ago in the, in, the, in the height of the Cold War, we were able to put the point at the key authoritarian regime, the Soviet Union, and say, look how awful it is. It's falling to bits. I remember PJ O'Rourke writing a thing about why is Eastern European concrete so crap? It falls apart in your hands. And now you often look at yeah, the richest autocracies go to Singapore and it looks like a science fiction future, a paradise and, a, and very much a science fiction future because you're not allowed to chew gum and the penalty for drug dealing is death. So, I mean, are we in a in from the democratic side of the world? Do we have a problem in that our system does not look so great, even from the inside in terms of delivering? Yes, I think it's a profoundly different challenge than the Soviet Union was where. The Soviet Union, they're not to say that there weren't people in the West or around the developing worlds who were kind of enamored with the Soviet system. I mean, certainly the Soviet Union had won lots of plaudits in the developing world in Africa and Asia and even some, you know, left aligned folks in the U.S. or in Europe. But it was very different where eventually someone would go to Moscow and would say, well, this is this is terrible. Mm. Whereas today, if you go to Shanghai or you go to Singapore, you're not going to say this is terrible because that's just not true. I mean, these systems, Singapore does work. The UAE does work. And this is not to say that we should become like them, but it is a real image problem for democracies everywhere if you basically can't convince your own people that your system is better at delivering, which is a big concern for me because in the United States, there's this odd, I mean, it, it kind of cuts both ways where both the left and the right, there is a kind of different mode, but folks on the fringes of both are pushing mm. for some type of autocracy where you see European academics argue, well, climate change is bigger than democracy. So yeah. we need an authoritarian government to come in and we legalize all these things so we can have, we can yeah. fix climate change. This is the, uh, the, the, the line of thought that is often characterized as eco-fascists, but, is, but is, can also be characterized as kind of emergency powers for an emergency situation. Precisely. But the problem is, how, how, A, how are we ever going to roll those powers back and mm. that you're giving the state compulsory 
I mean, compuls- compulsory powers mm. that you're not going to want them to have. I mean, I think the line in the book is, you know, neo-Stalinism, as they kind of refer to it, is going to require neo-gulags. I mean, there's no, <laughs> there's no way yeah. that in the United Kingdom or the United States, if the government said, okay, you can't buy X car because it's bad for the environment, or you can't go on holiday to Spain or Mexico because it's not, it's bad for emissions. There's no world in which either country would accept that. I promise you we'll get off this, at least the trains run on time theme very immediately. But I do have, and the question sticks in the throat. I mean, the book is about defeating the dictators. Do we have to sort of grit our teeth and, as democracies say, there are some things that we can learn from these working autocracies? Yeah, and I don't think that's unreasonable. I mean, I think, and it's the, the irony of it is if you're if we're talking about Singapore, which I talk about Singapore is the autocratic exception. Mm. Singapore is almost surely the best working autocratic state in the world in terms of innovation, in terms of education, in terms of just functionality, and frankly, in terms of human rights to some extent. I mean, Singapore is not excellent on that, on, that, uh, on that level, but definitely better than the UAE and definitely uh-huh. better than China. So I think, yes, I mean, the sense of Singapore has a more meritocratic civil servant system and a more meritocratic education system than certainly the UK and the US do, which is a good thing. Uh Or China spends so much money on infrastructure, which is kind of a demonstration of, you know, how do you keep economic growth going? How do you keep looking towards the future by investing in your infrastructure and thinking into future-focused infrastructure? It's not just let's fix the bridge that's falling down across the road. It's let's build the bridge connected to the cloud and train people who are equipped in cybersecurity to prevent hacks of the cloud. And I would say the West does like two of those three things, and we rarely get to all three. So yeah, I think there certainly are things you can learn from autocracies, but the interesting bit here is if we're saying Singapore is the autocratic exception, or China is you know, increasingly rich and powerful and you know, uh-huh. functional country. The irony is the West democracy, I mean, the broader West, so including Northeast Asia, parts of Northeast Asia, Korea, Japan, are probably best equipped to implement the best of Singapore yeah. or the best of China. Because if you're thinking of, okay, ancient China invented the meritocratic test, they invented the system. China today is not meritocratic at all. I mean, the, the selection of party cadres is very much so based on or who you know, who you're aligned with ideologically. It's not about how good you are. So the point being, these autocracies are going to struggle to implement all these facets of good governance because corruption and patronage is rooted in the system, with Singapore being the, the exception. Whereas that's not the case in the United States or in the United Kingdom or throughout Europe. There are ways to pull back corruption without bringing the system down, yeah. which is not the case in 99% of autocracies. Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
moving on to the actual strongman, how do you see the kind of trajectory of the, the spread of the authoritarian strongman now? Because we've been dealing with this since before Trump. You know, they, he's, he's not the only one by any stretch of the imagination. Have we reached a peak strongman yet, do you think? Have we reached a peak strongman? That's hard to say. I think what made Trump so worrying was, unlike previous American presidents who you know, people may have disagreed with on, on a political kind of aim. He just had no respect for the systems and no kind of respect for institutions. And that, to, I mean, certainly the most concerning president of my lifetime, and uh, probably the, almost surely the most concerning leader in a Western country of my lifetime and probably of, you know, people twice my age's lifetime. But the issue, I think, is there's no way to judge if it's only going to get better, it's only going to get worse. Because when growth stagnates uh. and when inflation's high and when people don't feel like the government is delivering, it is going to produce bad outcomes electorally. It's going to produce people like Trump or like Bolsonaro or like Maloney in Italy who are railing against the elite, who are railing against the folks who've governed for so long, who rail against the norms in terms of institutions, in terms of economic norms. And I think about someone like Erdogan, who came to power through a democratic election, has largely done away with a lot of the institutional kind of checks on his power and just ignores sound economic advice. Uh. And now inflation is three or almost six or, six or seven times what it is in the United Kingdom because he's ignoring sound economic advice. Yeah, his, his, isn't this, uh, he's got 24% uh, inflation yeah. and his tactic is to cut interest rates yeah. and nobody can stop him doing it because he's Erdogan. Precisely, yeah. precisely. Which so is I think, one of the problems of your authoritarian states. Precisely. I mean, sometimes you can get lucky and have a really smart, strong man like Lee Kuan Yew in mm. Singapore, but more often than not, you're going to have someone like Erdogan who maybe a keen politician, but is not clearly not good at governing. So my concern is that you could see someone like an Orban or like a Trump come to power that's frankly better at governing. Yeah. And I think Orban is much better at governing than Trump was in the sense of for years, I mean, pre-COVID, Hungary's economy was doing fine. I mean, it's still a relatively poor country for Europe. But Hungary was doing fine, and he would win in free and fair, free, mostly free and fair elections. I think now the institutions have been so corrupted that those elections are neither free nor fair. But my concern would be someone like Trump coming to office in a powerful country, a G7 or even a G20 country, who has no respect for the institutions of democracy, but has a kind of more affirmative agenda. Someone like Lee Kuan Yew who's going to say, OK, I'm going to solve X, Y, and Z issues in non-democratic ways because I think it's best for the country. You know what I'm trying to say? So it's mm. someone who's more focused on actually delivering for good governance, kind of quote unquote, mm. rather than delivering for themselves or satisfying their own ego. That would be my concern, because if people get accustomed to a kind of functional autocrat, why would they gonna, why would they vote him out? And it's always a him. It's never a woman. But why yeah. would they vote? Why would they vote him out? I mean, it's, just, it's the whole it is the Singapore syndrome syndrome yeah. or the UAE. The, there is no yearning in the UAE for democracy because the two or three presidents they've had, yeah, it's, it's a rich country and it's gotten gotten richer. And conversely, you know, we're all we all have to now get used to, you know, what you see on social media, what you see, the kind of the voices in the West. You know, time to end the disastrous democratic experiment is no longer a joke from private eye. You will hear it in the comment boxes. It's still fringe belief, but. Confidence in democracy is is de is declining in 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 Western democracies, isn't it? I want to go on to the question of how democracy can prevail because you run through, and this is the actual the structure of the book, isn't it? You run through a set of themes on what will en enable democracies to strengthen themselves and not fall prey to 
the talented autocrats who can deliver. One of them that you talk about is returning to meritocracy. You mentioned Emperor Wen of Han, the inventor of meritocracy. I always thought it was Toby Young's dad, but apparently it happened a whole lot, a whole lot earlier than that. I mean, we do have a problem with meritocracy in this country, don't we? In that, like, we've we've had a succession of governments, government of, of etonocracy. We've had a succession of well-connected, very incompetent or very self-seeking people in this country. No wonder people are getting a bit browned off with democracy. Tell me how we can return to the true meritocratic values. I think about the UK and kind of the solutions that I've laid out for meritocracy, you need to account for different starting positions in different households. So the notion being, if you grow up in a lower income household versus a higher income household, and the child in the lower income household is incredibly talented, incredibly smart, their chances of breaking through and getting to an Eton or getting to an Oxford or getting to an LSE are much slimmer than a kind of not dull, but a mediocre child in a high income household who can kind of find their way to the top with relative ease. Yeah. And that's a very clear problem for just basic functionality of a society. If you if the smart people, the smartest people are not rising to the top, are not getting government jobs, are not getting good private sector jobs that make the country work. I mean, that's a very obvious problem. So you need to make sure you're accounting for those different starting points by targeting educational assistance in terms of finances, frankly, for public schools or for state-run schools in lower-income areas, which is, again, something to its credit that Singapore does. Singapore targets money, specifically, and educational assistance in terms of training and teachers Mm. to the lower-income schools. It's a very specific notion of we understand that there is talent in people with lower income. We just have to help them. And it's a pretty well-tried-and-true story there that folks who are born into low-income households basically are do well in co- in in uh, early education, make their way up to college, get a government scholarship with the promise of you can go to either an elite institution in Singapore or elite institution in the West, come back and then you serve in the government. You get you enter the elite civil service track. And there are like four or five of them who've ended up, I mean, in recent years, like the last two or three trade ministers, a bunch of their foreign ministers have all come from lower income households. And they're not all Chinese Singaporean. They're not all of the kind of the, the dominant ethnic group. It's not to say that we don't have that in the West. I mean, of, of course, of course we do. But there is less of that, I think, an institutional effort across democracies to really account for those differing starting points. This is all completely true. And everybody would agree with it. And I haven't heard it mentioned by any politician in no. the UK in since the, the 1980s. Well, meritocracy has become a dirty word because meritocracy implies inequality. It does. I mean, not everyone is born with the same talent, whether that's, you know, I am not tall enough to play in the NBA. Baseline, off the bat, okay. I'm not tall enough to play in the NBA. And that's, that's to some extent, merit. Like, just get yeah. there. To play professional basketball, you need to be a certain height, and not everyone is. And something similar certainly happens in terms of just intellectual capacity, where I could not be a scientist. I could not be a doctor. I do not have the brain capacity for it. I was never a good science and math student. Don't do yourself down. No, but it's true. But it's true. But it's the point being that in a meritocracy, not everyone, mm. it's equality of opportunity. It's not equality of kind of solutions. In yes. the end. It's not equality of being. And it's become kind of popular to push back against meritocracy on that front. I mean, I think it's a Yale professor and a Harvard professor in recent years have written books. Karen, I think it's the tyranny of merit or something to that effect, basically arguing against meritocracy. Mm. And it's always ironic to me that it's the people arguing against meritocracy are the ones who thrived kind yes. of in the meritocratic system. It's they got to the top through merit. And then it's kind of, well, this system is really dangerous. Mm. And I don't I just don't see an alternative. And I think I've said it, I said in the book where the example is at some point, well, do you want your pilot 
to be someone who was chosen by merit or someone who was chosen through a lottery system mm -hmm. or chosen based on family connections or a surgeon. I mean, how, how do you want your surgeon to be chosen by merit or by connections? I think the diagnosis is spot on. It's just I look at our country and your country and think this is quite a way off being dealt with. Another point that you make is that a huge weak point of democracies and a huge strength of the autocrat is the question of, of trust that we have allowed our trust in our institutions to erode. And also we've generated politicians who actively attack them and build political capital by attack them. Everything from Trump banging on about the deep state to Reese Mogg wandering around placing notes on civil servants' desks, telling them they ought to be in work as if he's a prefect or something like that. We have spent, in many respects, the past decade in Britain and America attacking the pillars of all of our institutions, calling our judges enemies of the state, saying that our health service and our judiciary don't work, all these things. How do you restore faith in the institution, in institutions in countries like ours when we're in a situation where people will storm a presidential ratification ceremony or describe the judiciary as enemies of the people? Sure. I think there are some kind of odd solutions here that are across the board, where the big issue for me in terms of why do people not trust the government the answer is because the government hasn't been working. Mm. And I think that's actually quite simple. Whereas you think in the United States, you think in the United Kingdom, or you think in somewhere like Italy, well, why are people upset with the government? Because their quality of life has stagnated. Their children's schools are not particularly good. And if you look at polls across the West, people's view of their future is cloudy. I mean, it's not that if you ask them, do you think your children will be better off than you are? It's like 40% say yes, if not less, which is a real flip from 20 years ago. Mm. And that, to me, is very is very demonstrative of why people do not trust the government, because they blame the government for not basically allowing them to have these opportunities at a, at a moment when everyone's getting richer. Mm. All the countries are getting richer through years of free trade. Countries got richer, but people didn't get richer. That top 0.11% yeah. or whatever got richer, but it obviously, for lack of a better phrase, didn't trickle down. So in terms of solutions, the solutions revolve around delivering. And one solution I looked at was basically finding ways for the government to partner with the private sector to deliver on big projects. So the most obvious example in recent years was Operation Warp Speed the development of the COVID yeah. vaccines in the U.S., the similar approach in Germany. But there are other examples of this. I mean, Australia in the late 1990s developed this big highway in tandem with a private firm for, I think, $100, billion, $100 million less than expected uh -huh. and five years ahead of time. And there's this irony of, I think, we read the public, we read uh, more liberal-aligned kind of outlets, and it's all criticism of the private sector. It's the private sector is evil, it's capitalism is bad for democracy, but polls show over and over again that people trust business far more than they trust their government. They trust business far more than they trust the media. And this is not to say that business is going to deliver and fix yeah. all of our problems on its own, but certainly if a government approaches a business, a big business, with kind of a way to work together for the positive good, it really does serve to solve a lot of trust problems. Now, our listeners who are largely British may be laughing a hollow laugh here because we've had the plague of PFI in this country yes. for yes. two decades. And we tend to see the public-private partnership mm -hmm. as a fantastic way to shovel public money into the pockets of shareholders of private companies and to get your product delivered 10 years too late and 10 times over budget. Now... I'm not asking you here to come up with a way to make HS2 work yeah, quickly yes, and on yes. budget, but that is a problem with what you are you have just uh, posited, surely. Sure. I think it has been a problem here. It's been a problem in the United States. The issue, I would argue, is that terms and goals are not aligned from the start. 
clearly the private sector is more in, in those cases is more interested in the profit than they are on delivering. Whereas I think about something that was clearly more necessary in the short term, like the COVID vaccines. I don't think anyone would say that Germany or the U.S. government spent that money poorly. And I think the deliverance happened there so early and so well, because both sides were focused not on how much money can we make for the private sector and how quickly can we do this on the government side. It was a complete alignment of goals of let us do this as fast as possible. And of course, Pfizer's going to make a ton of money on the back end. But that would be my kind of diagnosis of why this has gone wrong in the UK or even parts of the United States, where there's a complete non-alignment of goals. And of course, our two countries are, are known for having a lot of bureaucratic red tape that certainly slows things like this down. But I would argue it's mostly about lacking alignment on, on goals. Just to wrap up then, I mean, it's a really powerful argument that what democracies need to do is double down on their beliefs in themselves. We need to be open. We need to be transparent. We need to act on the idea of the ideas of trust and meritocracy. We need to clean out the top end of our leadership and open it up. These are the ways that we will prevent a British or an American Orban or Erdogan from taking root. I want to ask you, how optimistic are you that 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 will happen? I would say like six out of 10 in terms of optimism of that so many of these solutions get taken up. Mm. I think if you ask me, what are the chances of in 10 years there being more autocrats across the West, the broader West, including South Korea and Japan and Australia than there are now? I think it's about 50-50 because I think you think about the the United States, I don't want to say we're out of the woods. That's certainly not the case. But our institutions have proven surprisingly strong, I think, where Trump was in power for four years and did a lot of not so good things. And all the kind of many of the authoritarian lines that he tried to walk, they just couldn't do it. I mean, the civil servants refused. People like H.R. McMaster refused uh, who were career U.S. government people who said, no, we're not doing this. So I'm actually fairly optimistic about the United States. What worries me much more is stagnating growth in parts of Europe Mm. and kind of lacking performance in terms of, I think, somewhere like Italy is quite concerning, where I think the provision of public services is not really functional uh, and there's relatively high inflation. And the U.K. is kind of in this odd position as well, where do I think the U.K. is at risk of having a Trump type get elected? And no, I I don't really think the UK body politic is necessarily ready for that. But five to six more years of stagnation of, I mean, economic stagnation of the housing market being out of control, of inflation being out of control, could certainly feed that impulse. I'm honestly much more worried about the West than I am somewhere like Malaysia, which is Malaysia's a, a democracy. I'm not sure it's the most functional of democracies. But to their credit, they just put their former prime minister in prison for corruption. And everyone expected that he was going to get pardoned. And he just hasn't. Uh, there was, he's very close to the king. Everyone thought the king would issue a royal pardon. And it hasn't happened yet. And I could be wrong. But that was a really strong step for accountability in a democracy that I think if you talk to the average policymaker in Westminster or Washington, would say, oh, Malaysia is kind of on the fringe. It's not, not in the most functional of countries. But they sent a very corrupt leader to prison, whereas we don't really do that. Uh, there's not much of an imperative to seriously prosecute corrupt leaders or officials in either of our countries, I think. Putting corrupt former prime ministers in jail. This is music to the ears <laughs> of the listeners to this podcast. Charles Dunst, thanks for joining us in the bunker. Thanks for having me. Defeating the Dictators, How Democracy Can Prevail in the Age of the Strongman is out right now from Hodder and Stoughton. You yourself can help democracy prevail by supporting free and independent media like us. 
Support The Bunker on Patreon to help us produce daily explainers and interviews like this to keep British democracy robust. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out a bit more. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Adventure has its own style. It's made of tall trees, unpaved trails, and at the center, the most capable Subaru Forester yet, the 2024 Subaru Forester Wilderness. It comes with 9.2 inches of ground clearance paired with standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and advanced dual-function X-Mode. Discover adventure on a deeper level, the 2024 Subaru Forester Wilderness. To explore all you can do with the rugged Subaru Wilderness family of vehicles, visit Subaru.com wilderness. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Andrew Harrison. The producers were Alex Reese and Jet Gerbertson, with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, and our marketing manager is Gina Richard. Music by Kenny Dickinson, with artwork by James Parrott. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>